For all the practical uses of technology in our daily lives, none may be more foundational and transformative than applying it to our own education system. Education technology, or EdTech, is an industry that's been around for a while but has seen rapid growth over the last decade, especially within the last year or two, and carries exciting implications for the future of education across the world. So let's talk about what that means. Hey everyone, welcome to Momentum, a podcast by Jotform where we talk about the technology, productivity tips, best practices, and strategic insights that help us move forward in business and in life. I'm your host, Elliot, and today I'm here with Monica Burns, Doctor of Education and founder of Class Tech Tips, as well as author of the upcoming book, EdTech Essentials. Monica, it's really an honor to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me today. Super excited. So you obviously have just a tremendous amount of knowledge and expertise in the field of educational technology. Uh, It's almost hard to even know where to start. So I guess the best place is just to maybe give a little more background on you, uh, what inspired you to get into the field and ultimately become the founder of Class Tech Tips, which I'd also love to hear more about. Absolutely. So I am a former New York City public school teacher. Um, I went to school for my undergrad for elementary education. So kind of got started on that pathway uh, right away um, in terms of a career path. And I taught in a school that was very traditional, local, um, local public school. So zoned for the neighborhood um, with an overhead projector, chalk and a chalkboard, (laughs) all of those great things that were working for us. And then we had an opportunity as a school to become a a magnet school. So applying for magnet funding was part of that process in the school that I was working at. And we became a magnet school for environmental stewardship, which meant that we had a lot of room to think about curriculum and what that might look like on the years that I was there. That transition took place um, to the point where I had a big bin of worms in my classroom. We were <laughs> composting for a couple of years, but I also had a cart of iPads that um, we were able to get. And we're talking about 10 or so years ago of going one-to-one with iPads. So not the first school to go one-to-one mm. by any means, um, but early on in that process. And so I started... Um, really thinking about ways to use digital tools with my students. Uh, Apple Education had asked me to come down to an event they were having and share a little bit um, to some teachers about what I was doing in my classroom. And I showed up and it wasn't just a couple teachers. It was a couple hundred teachers. And I had no public speaking experience (laughs) besides being in front of my fifth graders for, you know, several years, Um, kind of jumped up on stage, talked about what was happening in my classroom and started getting a lot of questions, right? What's your blog? Can I follow you on Twitter? All these things I didn't have answers to. Uh, This was back in... 2000, the beginning of 2012. And so then I just started pulling together ideas and resources. I launched my blog, classtechtips.com. I spent some more time as a classroom teacher and then transitioned out of the classroom to host professional development for educators mm-hmm. to run my blog and my podcast, the Easy Ed Tech podcast, and to think about different ways to support educators with technology integration. And so that work this past year and a half has been uh, entirely entirely virtual. I'm just getting back out um, Mm. this summer and fall into working in classroom uh, spaces, or I should say on site with uh, classroom educators in different parts of the country. And so it's been an interesting year of kind of shifting conversations around technology, um, but that's really where my journey started and and where I am now. Wow. Uh, That's a fascinating story. What a Two, two quick questions. One, I, I realize, pardon my own ignorance, but what is a, a, a magnet school? 
and also for yeah. listeners who might not know? Yeah, great question. Um, a magnet school, and there's a bunch of them. There's actually a magnet schools of America conference, I think was the first mm-hmm. place that I spoke at um, and hosted a presentation. And so a magnet school, there's special federal funding that's available. Um, the allocation takes place in different ways. My understanding, it's mostly through a, a grant process. We mm-hmm. were one of several schools in our uh, kind of district within New York City uh, that became a magnet school at that time. And magnet schools are there to attract students. So a magnet, right? So attracting students with a particular theme. So there's STEM magnet schools, arts and science magnet schools. Our theme was environmental stewardship, which just Mm. meant that we were doing all the things in terms of curriculum and standards alignment that we were expected to do as a New York City public school. But everything that we were doing was underneath this umbrella of the theme of environmental stewardship. So persuasive writing experiences weren't just essays. they were looking at persuasive topics around um, things that would fall underneath that kind of category of um, environmental stewardship, just as one of many examples. Gotcha. Oh, that's very cool. And you mentioned this, um, this kind of helped you procure, I guess, the, the funding or the partnership to have that uh, one-to-one ratio with like iPads and, and students in the schools, which, which sounds like a pretty significant step at the time, because that would have been a, a few years ago at this point, right? Yeah. So I want to say it was maybe 2010 or 11, I was at a conference with some of the educators at my school. We saw iPads kind of on display and we're thinking about what that might mean in our classrooms if we were able to get funding or kind of think through that process. And so we had the opportunity. Um, I was teaching grade five. We did not have any um, devices for students in the classroom beyond mm. a couple computers, you know, in the back of the room. Right. And so for us, we tried it out. Um, kind of made that decision. There are a few different classes that went one-to-one. And this is before Google Classroom, (laughs) before Uh, uh, the way that we think about even configuring devices um, with the kind of, I don't even want to say ease because sometimes it's still a complicated process, um, but there wasn't quite the same vocabulary for what we would now talk about with a deployment. Sure. Wow. So yeah, that, uh, that's, that's 11 years ago now. And, um, I'm guessing that's probably a much more say common practice now to have devices in in schools, but that would have been, uh, that would have been pretty novel, I'm guessing. And it, it's cool how you sort of very organically found, found yourself in this position, um, and sort of elevate yourself to, to really be that almost, um, that, that role model and spokesperson for, for technology in the classroom. And I guess maybe, Let's take a, a, a step back and more broadly define what educational technology means, because it's it's a term that's th- thrown around. You hear it, but maybe just for for listeners, what is ed tech? What does it encompass? What's the what's the big idea? Yeah, so ed tech is a big, broad term um, that when used can mean a few different things depending on your environment. So more broadly, as you mentioned, right, it's short for education Mm -hmm. technology and how we are using digital tools for teaching and learning. So that's kind of the broader definition, if you will, or or the one that I usually use when talking about technology implementation. So as opposed to just having a Wi-Fi network, you know, Mm -hmm. set up at your school, uh, it's really more 
more about the intention behind using technology for instructional purposes. So that could include content consumption, like students reading or viewing or listening to content on their device. It might include the distribution of content. So that workflow between students and teachers and students and students and teachers and their colleagues. So it can mean a few different things, but it's really around leveraging the power of digital tools for um, the educational purposes. And so this can be technology can involve hardware like the iPads, software like the like the systems, um, the educational platforms themselves, as well as obviously the communication systems between like teachers and students. So it's pretty much it really is just kind of an umbrella term of technology being used uh, for educational purposes. Absolutely. So I, I I presume kind of the answer to this, but I guess I'll just ask you to clarify: uh, Who does that tech apply to? Is it relevant for for all age groups, all learning levels? Um, where is the most activity in the tech industry these days? So there's definitely applications for different levels. I've used. Uh, iPads with pre-K students sitting around in a circle mm-hmm. on a rug to take them on, you know, virtual field trips and have them draw and respond and talk about what's on their screen with the student sitting next to them, right, all the way up to adult learners. So there's a lot that can happen within this space. And I do think there is an application for everyone. It's just going to look very different in different situations that can go from everything from assistive devices that mm-hmm. might meet specific needs that students have all the way up, or although I shouldn't say up necessarily or any particular direction, but all the way out to having um, students create content that they are publishing for an audience. So I like to think of it as opportunities for access, for leveling the playing field Mm -hmm. for some students, and really just giving them opportunities that might not be possible without those devices. So less about word processing, if you will, or typing up a paper, and more about the connections, the ease, and the availability of content. Now, when you talk about um, accessibility, the technology, how does that help there? Does that help for students who don't live close to schools, who maybe can't afford you know, the transit into a school or the system isn't set up in a way to get them there? Um, or h- how is that really breaking down the access barriers in your mind? Yeah, so a couple different things there to unpack. So talking about accessibility, that could be a screen reader for a student who needs that additional support, Mm -hmm. who might be low or no vision and Mm -hmm. need that in order to access information. It could include um, features like live captioning on a video that someone needs in order to access content. So there's kind of that area of accessibility. The assistive learning devices, right? The assistive piece, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And then there's also um, the piece about just giving students access to content that they wouldn't be able to get at all or easily. So some of that are the geographical barriers. Um, Often deployment with just hardware um, isn't going to meet all of those access needs. So having a robust infrastructure like a wireless or 4G, 5G connectivity in different places is really important. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that many people have found this past year and a half or so um, 
during so much distance learning or remote learning experiences is that there are a lot of gaps and it's more than just that, you know, handing someone a Chromebook in order to get them to what they need and the vocabulary and the conversations around that, I think have really elevated this past year too. Sure. Well, I think that, uh, you know, begs the the question mage, I'm jumping the gun here a little bit of, you know, how has this been propelled obviously by the onset of COVID-19 and the, and the challenges and restrictions that have come from the pandemic. Like I'm, I'm in the middle of an online MBA. It was built from the ground up to be online. So, um, it's been a great experience, but I also know even from a couple of friends who are also, uh, undergoing MBA programs, um, a lot of, at least, you know, college colleges had to start transitioning to remote teaching that weren't prepared to, you know, it's great. Like some programs were built from the ground up to be online, but a lot aren't. And so suddenly then they need to transition because uh, they need to keep these kids in school uh, to being remote programs. And I know like some, you know, other schools just kind of shut down entirely depending on the, on the grade level, what have you, there's a, a range of responses, but um, could you speak a little bit to just your impressions from how the educational field and industry has reacted to all these uh, restrictions suddenly imposed by COVID-19 and how that has um, hopefully propelled uh, educational technology and brought it to the forefront? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I think it's really expedited some of the conversations that probably would have happened anyhow, uh, 5, 10, 15 Mm -hmm. years from now around the use of technology in education settings. So really just um, changing that timeline um, to make it all happen a lot faster. So can we do this? How does this work? All of those types of conversations were just um, brought to the forefront a lot quicker than we might have imagined without the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, That being said, with the quick emergency shift Mm -hmm. to remote learning in so many places, there were some spots that happened to be ready Mm -hmm. to go um, and others that did not have those systems in place, right? There's an argument now to say, all right, everyone should have that, right? There's no excuse, if you will, anymore, right? This unknown is now unknown. What does it look like in terms of our emergency preparedness, essentially, in a way that we wouldn't have thought about it before? Um, But that being said, there's a lot of schools that had robust implementations of technology through learning management systems. Mm -hmm. So their LMS, everyone already knew how to log in. They might not have ever used video conferencing before, but they knew where to go to post things or organize resources or had communication channels that weren't just there, but were being used already um, in digital spaces. So I think for some schools that had um, different types of infrastructure in place, different routines in place, they were able to scale at a different rate than places that just did not have that um, already happening in their school communities. And you know, we can look back and say, well, of course they should have had those things, but I don't know that that's necessarily fair, right? Given the climate um, before um, those massive school closures. But at this point, you know, I think more and more people are realizing if they haven't made a strong commitment to a hub, a central place, a platform, Mm -hmm. a learning management system, whatever you want to call it, uh, that that's important uh, for all the different things that need to happen with um, instruction and different delivery models, but also having a very, um, 
easy for families to access system for communication and follow-up and making sure that level of transparency is there. I think um, more and more schools are making a commitment to make sure that is is happening. Right. Well, it really, yeah, I think COVID-19, as you said, really exposed a lot of gaps in the the societies, communities, um, the systems that were set up for something like this and that really weren't. And I'm wondering, um, you know, tech, ed tech as a whole is obviously such an empowering thing as, as you discussed, but in addressing those gaps, the systems that kind of weren't set up or hadn't really moved towards that, is it because there is, is there any hesitation by the educational community at large about ed tech? Is there any reservations where they're like, actually, no, why would we want to do this? They, they kind of want to stick to their more, you know, antiquated, just in a classroom, this is how it's done, chalkboard. Has there been a lot of resistance to that? And is that one of the reason we've seen such a disparity? Or is it just strictly a matter of funding? They haven't really been even exposed to the ideas? Or is there some just resistance to the idea of uh, introducing that level of technology into the educational system? So I would say that it is for sure a combination of all of those factors, <laughs> at least looking back, right, sure. before um, the shift to remote learning in so many places, right? There were all of these um, different situations, different schools, and you could make um, certain generalizations about places or geographies or all of that, right? But we all know that sometimes in a community, a school that's one town over might feel very different for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's always a lot of variety and like, you know, speaking state side here, you know, of what that looks like. Um, that being said, moving forward, you know, I know in conversations I've been having with school leaders, there's definitely understanding that we don't want to necessarily have the amount of screen time, if you will, that this past year has had when we are back right. together. So, and I don't, I'm always hesitant to give a, a number, right. Or talk about minutes or hours or anything like that. But I think we can all say that this past year with students learning at home, right. Has been a wide increase and not all of those screen experiences have been high quality sure. in the sense that when we come back together in classrooms, you know, that shift to place an emphasis on high quality um, experiences with digital tools is what I know um, folks I'm talking to are thinking through. Like we want to make sure that we are really cognizant of what that shift back looks like, our emphasis on social emotional skills, which can happen mm -hmm. online and offline. And so I think that that's a piece of it. You know, one thing that I've been um, talking about this past spring, um, especially on some webinars with educators, is this idea of really avoiding the nostalgia, right? Just mm -hmm. to run back for the sake of the feelings that those experiences um, bring to us and just being thoughtful about which initiatives we didn't quite miss, we might not need anymore, and which ones we really do want to spend some more time thinking about moving forward because we notice gaps or we see a need now to um, take care of certain things. Sure. No, that's a, uh, it's an important conversation, I think, because we're not, it doesn't sound like the end goal for even what you're proposing is that we kind of keep with the COVID-19 model of fully remote learning. It's great that, you know, institutions are empowered to facilitate that if absolutely required. But I guess what, in your opinion, does the ultimate like 
educational technology setup look like? And uh, we, we might even dive into that later when we discuss your, your book and such, but you aren't necessarily advocating, okay, fully remote, fully remote learning. You're advocating still going and being in person and getting that community and that, that energy, but just using digital systems to enhance that. Is that correct? I think that there's so much that can happen within a traditional classroom space or mm-hmm. traditional saying that we are hundred percent face to face and we can leverage digital tools in different ways. Sure. I think there's also a good argument to be made for the power of hybrid learning experiences where students mm-hmm. might be able to work through content at more of an asynchronous or self-paced model. And so those are other pieces that I know I am interested to see what that level of adoption or the options that are available for families um, if they're looking to participate that in a K-12 manner, but I think in a higher ed situation, right, the conversations around fully online or hybrid models are also um, are also front of mind for folks too. Right. Well, it's a it's a case by case basis. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, so many of, you know, modern modern work places and work offices are either in a hybrid model or fully remote. Some aren't even going back. And it's not apples to apples comparison to compare, you know, your work duties with the educational system, specifically, especially with certain grade levels, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Post-grad, maybe it makes sense. You have a lot of options for remote learning if you already have a job. But, you know, I I definitely do think personally, there's still just a, a lot of positive experience to be had with a genuine in in class experiences growing up and, you know, formative and, um, but it's important to have the options. So, um, let's, let's segue to discuss your book that's coming up, which is, uh, ed tech essentials, the top 10 technology strategies for all learning environments. So can you give us just, I guess, sort of a broad introduction to it? Um, why you wrote it sort of what's, what's, what's the gist? Yeah, so really excited to partner with ASCD again for this new Mm -hmm. book. I published a task before apps with them a few years ago and have created a few quick reference guides for them the past few years. So this new book is really about prioritizing uh, what it is we want to do with education technology, thinking a little bit more big picture and the types of behaviors that we want students to be able to have or the skills that we want them to build when it comes to navigating Mm -hmm. digital spaces, creating in digital digital spaces, then also thinking about what an educator can do in a classroom setting that they can use technology for that might be different than in the past um, for assessment, for providing uh, opportunities for students to see the world, for building some of those SEL uh, skills and experiences for students. So it's really about narrowing in on what can we do in these spaces, what is high priority, and what does it look like in action? Right. That's a... These are broad questions, so uh, I'm very glad this this resource is going to be out there because they're they're important ones to answer. I think there were there are two chapters I I saw in it that I would like to delve a little bit deeper into. Um, the first one is curating resources to support all students. Um, I was just curious, what is that? What what does that mean? What do these resources look like? How do, how how are they supposed to get in the hands of students? How are students supposed to use them? How do you teach students about them? Um, it's obviously so important. You can't have ed tech without the tech and you got to get the tech in the hands of the students. Um, that feels just like such a broad idea to me. What can you elaborate a little bit more on what you talk about in that chapter and sort of your, your perspectives on that, that big question? So we know that a curator at a museum, right, picks mm-hmm. out the pieces of artwork that would go on the walls for an exhibit. And if it's a, a, 
piece or an exhibit that's all around a particular artist. That's not going to be all of their things, right? Mm -hmm. Just a selection. They're there to tell a story about a particular period of time or an artist's life. And so the idea of a teacher as a curator is nothing new, right? We always are picking out things that we think are going to help students access content and interact with different experiences. So this idea of curating resources within a digital space, right, can feel overwhelming when we open up YouTube or when we go straight to Google. Google, and there's just so much out there. So mm-hmm. this chapter of the book really focuses in on different types of media, what it might mean to pull in something that is more audio-based, more mm-hmm. video-based, or more text-based, and bringing that to students, curating or handpicking resources with differentiation in mind. So knowing that not everything necessarily needs to be given to every student, but that sure. we might decide to pull a video resource to help someone who's demonstrated they need a little bit more background information before mm-hmm. diving into a topic or pulling in a resource to help clarify something for a student who needs some additional support. So really looking at it as this purposeful and intentional use of the resources that are out there and available. It's a practice that teachers have been doing in different ways um, for all the times that they've been in classrooms working with students, but with all of the different digital resources out there, we can be really strategic and intentional about what that looks like. So this chapter unpacks some strategies for making that happen. That's that's really interesting. So it's more the the curating is the important part, you know, with intentionality, finding what students need and not inundating them with more than they need. But if they need more, also giving them that. Um, I think that's an interesting thing to hit on. I've experienced this a little bit. Uh, go back to my my online MBA and to express my ignorance to the to the listeners. I took a macro econ course and I've never taken macro econ in undergrad. So they had an introductory quiz like you need to be able to have these concepts mastered to even mm-hmm. start the course. I didn't know any of them, so completely failed that. And I was like, well. I am in trouble. Um, but they provided basically a two week crash course to get you up to speed on these concepts. So then you could start the real course. And I guess that would be sort of an example of what you're talking about, right? They didn't make everyone take the crash course because they assumed most people took the undergrad uh, course like I should have, which I did not. But they didn't just say you can't take the course or like, here's a solution for you. Just finish this and you should be set to go. And it worked. It was a tough two weeks, but it worked. And that's kind of mm-hmm. what you're talking about, right? The sort of intentionality, giving students what they need, but not giving them too much almost. Absolutely. And, you know, that piece, that formative assessment, which is essentially what happened to you in that situation, right? Your instructor said, you know, I need to see what the baseline is for everyone in this class. And based on this information, I'm going to do something with it, right? So the decision that they made based on your results was to provide you with this background information and this opportunity to essentially, as you said, right, kind of play catch up or fill in some of the blanks with those experiences. That's actually um, a chapter in the book, looking at assessment, thinking about how we can use technology to really hear from everyone. So in your case, right, that might've been a Google form or a quick quiz or some multiple choice questions, right? But for students in um, a different setting that might not be able to respond accurately or may struggle with sentences, right? They, or typing out sentences, I should say, right? They might use tools that capture video or their voice to share, right? So there's so many ways to think about capturing assessment data, but it really is, you know, what we do with that information. So in that example that you shared, right? Absolutely. Acting on a baseline assessment to drive instructional decisions can also connect to that idea of curating resources that maybe not everyone needs at a particular time, 
but some students have demonstrated that they um, are in need of. Right. No, 100%. And this uh, kind of... I have another question that is not uh, maybe related to this, but I'm just curious to get your input. Um, what is your What are your thoughts on technology sometimes being used to for assessment and for tests and quizzes like that being used to like game the system, like you know cheating on a test, um, proctored proctored exams? I know. I think I saw actually a New York Times article recently. It was some uh, some Ivy League where I think it was like 40 students or something got put on leave because they were found to have cheated in a proctored remote test exam. I could be wrong, but I think it was somewhere around that number. And they basically fought back saying they're, you know, we have, it's this proctoring algorithm that's reading your, uh, where your eyes are and they're tracking your facial expression. And these are not foolproof systems, but I think just given the coverage that this incident got at such a high level of education, um, I'd be curious to get your, your input on sort of that aspect of educational technology. It's a very, I think, small subset. It's one of the it's one of the the negative things that's drawn attention to it. And that's really too bad because I don't think most students would want to do that. But the naysayers, I can presume that's one thing they would bring up pretty frequently. So I guess how in your in in your opinion, like how do you kind of address that? Yeah. So, I mean, there's two big things to think about there. One is that those types of technologies, I like to think of them more as a tool. And so I just had a conversation. I did a webinar with the folks at um, Trefera a few weeks ago around Google workspaces and some of the updates there, including the originality reports. Mm -hmm. And that idea that when someone submits something, it's scanned through and said, did this call come from the internet? Was this already published somewhere else? Right. And so there's a lot of room there for conversation, right? If I'm heavily quoting a piece of, um, evidence to support my opinion, well, those numbers are going to be off. Those aren't all going to be original thoughts of mine, right? right? Some of those sentences are going to come from the New York Times, right? Or another And they're cited, right? So, right. It really just becomes an opportunity to use that as part of the conversation around, right? Is Mm -hmm. this something that is an accurate representation of someone's understanding of a topic? And, you know, I think the other kind of piece there to consider And although it might not be possible in all of the situations, it's one thing that I know has come up in conversations around distance learning this past year is that, you know, if we are asking only multiple choice questions, as opposed to say open-ended questions or looking at things through more of a project-based learning lens, right, there is going to be that kind of quick ability to Google the answers, if Mm -hmm. you will, right, and plug them in. And that might not be a a real clear representation of how well someone understands something, um, as opposed to more open-ended questions or things that are going to require someone to synthesize information from different places and essentially create something new in their response. Right. Well, I think it's, uh, it it begs the question to even rethink how some tests and quizzes are are given right because mm-hmm. i think if in, in response to this it, the same article said that a few universities um actually gave a pledge that they'll never use any sort of proctoring device on any of their uh any of their tests and that it, it fell on them 
it was their responsibility to write tests and quizzes that wouldn't need it, meaning they aren't Googleable. And, and I think it's a reframing from the education institution itself. Like there is another way to present questions that need answers that aren't Googleable. It is possible. It's like if something is Googleable anyway, and you can have notes. I mean, in the real world, you'll always be able to have Google and you'll always be able to have notes. So I think that's a, honestly a more realistic approach anyway. Like here are the concepts, but show us how to use them in this open-ended answer. Anyway. I just thought that was a, a very interesting article that ties in uh, very timely with uh, this whole discussion. So uh, just had to run that by you. But I do want to get back to the book now. And um, another chapter specifically that uh, caught my interest, I'd love to to expound on a little bit, was plan for tech rich learning experiences. That caught my eye because I'm, I'm curious what you mean by um, tech rich here and sort of how, how you do plan and prepare for that. So, um, could you expound on that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. That's actually the last chapter in the book. So okay. it's really around having a plan for how you're going to use technology. Is it intentional? Do we really need it in this moment? Are we looking at the value add that a particular tool or feature of a tool has? Maybe you know that value add is the ability to use voice to text or to leave voice comments on something or all of those pieces that when we are really infusing technology into an experience, right? Making it tech rich as opposed to say a low tech experience that we are intentional and strategic. And so the title of my last book is tasks before apps, right? Really focusing and putting that learning front and center with technology. So this chapter is all about the plan for mm -hmm. that. Do you have a vision for what using technology means in your school or your classroom? depending on the lens that you're coming in as you're reading that book. And then part of that is also acknowledging some of the things we've already talked about today around the changing landscapes mm -hmm. for implementation. Um, you know, we can all hope and work under the assumption that we have a pandemic under control moving forward and that that will not be a reason for massive long-term school closures. But we can also acknowledge that there are plenty of times where there may be extended times where sure. students are out of the classroom that we do have a sense of, like a large storm. I know I've worked with districts where they've been closed for a week or two for hurricanes, mm -hmm. right? Or so things like that, where we might say, okay, this is how we switch. This is how we make a quick decision and we're prepared and ready for it. Or that we at least have the vocabulary to talk about what it looks like. So that chapter is really about bringing it back to what we hope to get out of using technology in the classroom, looks at building your ed tech tool belt, if you will. So you're mm -hmm. using some core resources as opposed to being overwhelmed with all of the things. Um, so really choosing strategically too. Right. Well, it's, it's really a summary of everything, like a tech rich learning experience. Um, that a lot goes into that that we've talked about from the software to the hardware to the to the concepts to the ideations and i guess you you really aren't going to pull it off effectively unless you have this holistic vision for what that looks like for your academic institution and i think you, you make a good point about may hopefully we aren't thrown into another pandemic where everyone has to stay home for another year. Uh, you never know. Um, but there are also going to be smaller disruptions and even being set up to seamlessly transition 
through those, just think how much that would, I mean, I'm from Wisconsin. We'd have snow days, we'd have blizzards, like school would be cut off. Normally it wouldn't be for like a week at a time, but it could be for a few days at a time. And that's, that's a major disruption and the kids love it. Oh yeah. Let's let's school until they realize that they have to make that up or it's almost worse when they don't. And then it just completely disrupts the curriculum. Um, the teacher might have to redo some quizzes, some tests, you know, it just, it, it makes it difficult for everyone. I think when these contingencies come into play and you aren't able to continue that, that experience. So I like the idea of having systems that can maintain a seamless, um, seamless learning experience that maintains that, that continuity. I think that's, that's really important. Well, that sounds, and all that, all this sounds wonderful. Obviously, um, the book sounds amazing. It's come, comes out in July. Is that correct? Yes. So it'll be out at the end of July. I want to say the last week of the month. Gotcha. So this will probably be out by the time people are listening to this episode. We're recording this in June. Uh, we'll probably put it out later this summer. So please dive into and take a look into Ed Tech Essentials by Monica Burns. Obviously, she very much knows what she's talking about. Um, so let's let's kind of put a bow on on some of these things that we've talked about and cut to the chase you know, for listeners who are who are interested. Um, generally speaking, uh, again, for those interested listeners, could you give um, a short list or preview of some of your, your top recommended ed tech platforms and services for those who kind of want to investigate this option. And of course, there's no one size fits all. Um, mm-hmm. Everything's going to be different for any situation. But are there some some good basics that you would recommend that usually apply pretty well in most circumstances? That's kind of a good starting point. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you saying that too, because I usually start off by saying, (laughs) embrace your place, right? Like what is the place that you've been told you have to use? Start there. Um, You might be surprised with what you can do with it. And that's true if you're using a learning management system like Schoology or Google Classroom, like again, have a sense of what you're working with as your hub or your platform, and it'll help you make some decisions for what goes into that EdTech tool belt. So that being said, though, there are plenty of tools that I love Mm -hmm. and I'm really excited about. I love using open-ended creation tools, ones you can do a whole lot with. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just yesterday, I was working with a school um, in Texas, and we were talking about that idea of open-ended creation tools, things that give kids lots of ways to show what they know. So if you are excited about podcasting with students, you might be excited about tools like Soundtrap or GarageBand, giving them a space to record their voice. If you're excited about getting kids a space to publish for a small audience of just their classmates or a larger audience of the world, um, you might want to check out tools like Adobe Spark or mm-hmm. Book Creator. Those are two where I've um, done some work with their teams and just really love all the things you can do with them and the flexibility within those spaces. I know I tend to gravitate towards tools that are pre-K through 12 friendly as much as mm-hmm. possible sure. uh, because I do so much work with um a wide band of educators. So when it comes to more of an assessment piece from an ongoing, of course, some of those others that I mentioned might fall into the categories, but I'm really excited about tools like Flipgrid that have options uh, for students to share with voice that let them use text, that let them cover their camera if they want to um, and share in different ways. And then even tools that provide some flexibility like a Mentimeter where you can respond with a word cloud one day, an extended 
good response the other day or even have kids mm-hmm. put on a scale of how they're feeling on a different day of the week. So those are mm-hmm. the things that I'm always looking for are tools that are really flexible so that you're not introducing them in a big kind of showcase one time and right. only using them once, but that you can revisit them multiple times over the course of the year. No, that makes that makes total sense. And and thank you for those resources. That's uh, it's it's a good list and ones that check off these um, these important boxes that uh, you're right. It doesn't just flash in and flash out, uh, but these are ongoing ongoing tools that can be used to support and learn and really facilitate the best best experience possible for 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 children and uh, basically anyone who is trying to learn uh, via technology, of course. So, yeah, we'll uh, I'll try to aggregate those and maybe link out some of those into the description when we do when we do make this episode live, because I think those would be really cool resources for um for people to have access to and at least investigate. So I guess uh, kind of one of the the broader, uh, one of the final two questions I, I have on the docket today is, in your estimation, what does the future of ed tech look like? Like, where is this all, where does this all go? Where do you see the industry going in 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, you know, with the advancement of technology and how it integrates into, into our daily lives and what sort of, to you, what is the optimal, I guess, outcome thinking broad picture? Yeah. So I think one thing that's happened this past year and a half or so is that the vocabulary that many people have had in the education space around technology and technology implementation has elevated. Mm-hmm. Um, people are asking better questions about privacy and security. People are asking questions around career readiness that they might not have thought about in the same way, whether that's looking at growing careers in, say, cybersecurity or supporting students who might want to create content where we might have looked at, let's make a movie or let's record this. Now, uh, with more and more folks consuming audio only or podcast content, right? Those conversations have shifted too. So I think that the future of ed tech will include more uh, conversations around vetting tools um, strategically that meet certain needs when it comes to privacy and accessibility. I think that in the future, we'll see more of the types of programs that may be now seen as an elective or an extra um, embedded into the curriculum. Now, I think more than ever, we can all stand back and say that many careers require uh, knowledge of how to navigate different tools. And if that means that we're building more transferable skills like problem solving, troubleshooting, navigating online discussions, we might not have these same tools that we're using today in 10 or 15 years, but some of the same skills behind our navigation Mm -hmm. of those spaces will remain the same. So when it comes to more of the hopeful side of things, I'm definitely in that camp of hoping that we are thinking not just about the tools of today, but preparing for some of these unknowns by embracing some of the other skills that can be used to help students navigate um, any online space. Right. No, I love that. I mean, it's not it's not just about the tools because those are inevitably going to change, but the core skills and concepts that you're integrating and, and learning um, using these using these tools is, is really what matters. And you hope, you know, I'd hope obviously technology scales. It's going to only become easier, more powerful, hopefully cheaper, even more accessible. Uh, it'll be able to hopefully positively influence, uh, you know, even more people in the educational community kind of as technology 
does advance and the systems become better. And I hope it becomes easier as a result of that rather than more complex. I hope that there there are more tools that can kind of do do multiple things as opposed to branch out even further into more niche spaces. And sometimes you never know which way it's going to go. Uh, are you going to get a, a bunch of platforms doing different things? Or are you going to get a platform that really does it all? And uh, that's kind of the fascinating trend to see in technology is which way is it, is it going to go. But either way, as you said, hopefully it can really propel these students um, as far as their core concepts and these skills go. Um, I guess the, the final thing I sort of wanted to ask is uh, if we do have any listeners or, or just in general, anyone who has um, been interested in educational technology as an industry might want to even look into getting into the industry or finding a way to support it, uh, not just use it, but actually um, be be a player in it. Um, what are some steps or advice you would give to, to people like that who want to get started in ed tech? Well, I would say that one good thing to consider are all the different places that you can learn. And I think one mm-hmm. thing that we found this year with a shift, I know my, you know, my professional development hat on as a facilitator, it is there's been more and more webinars, free content, different social networks to learn about what's happening in spaces. So although I've been on Twitter for a decade or so now sharing in that space, you know, embracing a spot like Clubhouse, where there's been a lot mm-hmm. of rooms and a lot of conversations. I'm hosting one after our uh, recording today. And it's it's been interesting to see different spots that people are connecting. So if someone's looking to get into the industry or learn more about it and look to support it, I would say go to the places where people are having some of these conversations. And it might not be taking the trip to a conference the way that we would have last year or the year before, although hopefully that will be um, Mm -hmm. on the schedule in the future. But it might be going to some of these other kind of alternative places and communities and looking to see what people are are talking about, even if it's teacher TikTok or other spots where people are sharing. (laughs) uh, There's a lot of places we might have thought of being unconventional, but are very much a spot where people are sharing and, and learning from one another. Yeah, I mean it's it's a community, right? And people are out there, and there are lots of lots of different um, touch points. So, I guess it's really, as you said, just kind of a matter of of getting out there and and seeing what there is to see, and putting yourself out there and and engaging. And that's that's awesome. That's that's great advice. And uh, this has all been uh, really wonderful. Um, thank you so much for for shedding some of this light uh, on this really important topic. Um, I guess before before we leave off, is there anything you know you kind of want to add? Anything we've we've missed? any any relevant final points to kind of put a bow on the conversation or you'd like to leave people with? I would just say that if they are, you know, looking for tips or information, I know that I just try my best to share <laughs> in spaces like the ones uh, we just mentioned where I know educators are. So whether that's following along on Instagram where people reach out all the time and ask questions or share something they're excited about or jumping into another social space. Um, It's been a lot of fun uh, using those uh, places to make connections and learn and um, just um, be there to answer any questions that might come through. That's awesome. Well, well, thank you, Monica. And I definitely encourage anyone to check out Class Tech Tips or or your new book. Uh, if anyone is interested in learning more about this, it's it's a fascinating topic and uh, one that will assuredly just become more prevalent in, in today's day and age. So um, thank you again for giving us your time. Uh, I learned a lot today. I hope our listeners are able to as well and uh, really appreciate your, your insights today. So thank you for being a guest. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Take care.